Welcome to A Life in Biography. If you've been following along with these podcasts, you know that I've been reading and commenting on correspondence that I've had with Samuel R. Delaney. This dates back uh, more than 20 years. And uh, I'm reading and rediscovering, because I don't read this correspondence before I read it to you on the podcast. Uh, So it, it comes sometimes as kind of a shock. Not because... I've changed my mind about very many things, although I probably have in some cases, but simply because I have such a poor memory, I had no idea, or I could, I didn't remember that the correspondence was so extensive over several months, a a discussion of biography uh, between two writers uh, of a kind I haven't read anywhere else. Uh, which is why I'm doing the podcast. Before I go on with the correspondence that I've been reading, I wanted to say just a little bit about a film that I watched the other night called The Wife, which I think came out in 2017, starring Jonathan Price as a Nobel Prize winning author. The film is about his winning uh, and, and going to Stockholm to receive the Nobel Prize and his wife, uh, played by Glenn Close. They also have two children, one of whom is a rather prominent character in the movie. And what, of course, piqued my interest is there is a biographer in the movie, played by Christian Slater, in a style and role that he has really perfected, uh, a kind of, I don't know, uh, almost cynical, uh, worldly wise, um, verging on sarcastic um, attitude toward the world. When he first appears in the film, uh, I was annoyed. <laughs> As a biographer, I was annoyed because he's kind of crass and vulgar and comes out with things that I think most biographers. Uh, they want to know things about uh, their subject's private lives, but they approach it with considerably more sophistication, shall we say. On the other hand, he's a provocateur, uh, and he tries to get particularly the wife, Glenn Close, to open up by telling her about things either he knows, that he knows she knows, or things perhaps she doesn't know. Uh, And in effect, he's saying he knows things about the lives of this Nobel Prize winner and his wife, uh, that aren't certainly aren't public knowledge, and that he wants to get her on the record to respond to. And presumably, though he doesn't say this, through her he will also get to his subject. The point is that as soon as he starts asking questions, it provokes the Glenn Close character into thinking about the life she has lived with this Nobel, Nobel Prize winner in a very different way. There are flashbacks in the film that show you some things about their early life. And there's a secret um, that um, is not disclosed until the very end of the film, and I won't spoil it for you if you haven't seen it, as to what that secret is. I just want to say that the truth of that marriage and of that writer's work um, was buried And it's only the biographer, the interloper, the intruder, uh, by asking certain questions, um, elicits certain truths that the couple do not want to face and that the wife ultimately does, I think. Why do I bring this all up? Well, because I think it's of interest to you if you're a biographer or you're interested in biographies or how biographers work. I also bring it up because it relates to this long correspondence that I had with Samuel R. Delaney, which, which began with his observing a group of biographers who seemed rather cavalier in the way they joked about their subjects. And in the course of this correspondence, I, I try to explain to Delaney why that might be so. Uh, And one of the things that he keeps telling me is that biographers and fiction writers, 
for example, we're, we're all writers. We're all part of the same world. And therefore, my wife and I should have approached Susan Sontag in quite a different way as fellow writers, not simply as biographers wanting to write her life. And my side of the correspondence has to do with trying to explain to him that Susan Sontag would never permit us, would not, would, let me put it this way, would never permit herself to think that her biographers were certainly not her equals. But I don't even mean equals. I mean simply writers in any sense that she considered herself a writer. Uh, in other words, the biographer, by definition, is an outsider figure. Occasionally, of course, especially with so-called authorized biography, the biographer is an insider. But to me, uh, there is no such thing as insider biography. Or if there, or, or if it is an insider biography, it, it doesn't, it, it can't possibly get at the truth, uh, unless it's simply a memoir, really, of someone else's uh, understanding of a friend's life. Let's say something like that. So it's a very thought-provoking film, uh, and I think that um, part of my reaction to the biographer, at least in the beginning, had to do with my experience, obviously, as a biographer, but also the kind of dramatic foreshortening that a film especially would have to result in, so that Christian Slater has to speak lines um, that uh, come to the point <laughs> much more quickly than a biographer interviewing a subject, or a subject's wife in this case, would would approach. Uh, the technique would be very different. And of course, people watching the film, uh, this is their impression of how a biographer works. And I guess what I'm saying is, it is, in a lot of ways, that is ultimately the, the kind of material the biographer uh, elicits is through the kind of techniques that, that Slater used, but they're, they're uh, um, as I say, dramatized or foreshortened shortened or more pointed uh, than would be the case uh, with uh, certainly any successful uh, biographer. Well, back to uh, 1997, April 6, 1997, Samuel Delaney is writing me ab about his own treatment of a biographer in a novel called The Mad Men, which I was considering using in a summer course, the summer of 97, uh, for a course on biography. And ultimately, as I, I will say, uh, I don't use that novel, but I do use some of Delaney's work. He says, April 6, 1997, Dear Carl, and here is The Madman. He sent me a copy of the novel. I hope you will find it interesting, though for class purposes, the master bellum tale might fit your needs more closely. It's another one of his fictions. While The Madman has its biographer villain, that's the other thing that annoyed me, is that in The, in the, the, the Wife, the biographer is a kind of villain, in a sense. Although, ultimately, I think his work is in a way, redeemed by the film. While The Madman has its biographer villain, the novel is about so many other things that might seem unfocused to your students. And, as I've said, the sexual element might just overwhelm the biographical concern, though its central problem, as I said before, inspired by the awful biography of Foucault by straight scholar James Miller, The Passion of Michel Foucault, is very much the fitness of a particular sort of straight male to understand and write the biography of a gay intellectual. But the decision whether to use the book or not in your class is, of course, yours. The Hassler story was suggested by the real life, this is a story in the novel, by the real life unsolved murder, a stabbing, of a brilliant linguistics professor and natural language philosopher Richard Montague. Um, he cites one of the titles of Montague's work, Form of Philosophy, the Collected Papers of Richard Montague, Yale University Press. He was murdered outside a gay bar in Los Angeles in 1973. The transfer of the story from Los Angeles to New York and the lowering of the age, Montague was in his early 40s in my novel, Hassler at his death is 29, is however tantamount to saying it's a di different tale after that. The copy I'm sending you is hand-corrected. I include an errata sheet 
you might want to Xerox up and distribute to your students again if you decide to use the book. I shall be writing to you again anent yours of April 6th. He's going to respond to another of my letters. Good thoughts to you and Lisa. All best. Samuel R. Delaney. That was April 6th. Now we come to another letter of his before I respond. April 25th, 1997. Oh, sorry, this is a letter, uh, sorry, my mistake. It's my letter to him. April 25th, 1997, Dear Chip, I haven't acknowledged your two notes of April 6th. I call them notes because our correspondence usually runs to several pages, and I'm going to try to make this a note too. I've decided to use the Master Bellum tale instead of the Madman. I haven't yet read the novel, which I am looking forward to a great deal. Also, I take your point about the other issues the novel addresses that may get in the way of the biography theme. In itself, that would not trouble me, but because this is a short, intensive five-week course, I think it is risky going with a long novel I haven't taught before and which students will have to read quickly. I also would like to use, with your permission, the excerpt from The Motion of Light in Water, another book of his. I like this piece very much, and it is a great companion to the Master Bellum tale. Here's another topic for our correspondence and biography, off-the-record interviews. We've done more of these for the Sontag biography than for any other subject, alive or dead. The latest one was a most sympathetic portrait of Sontag, not uncritical, but very impressive because the interviewee had such a profound grasp of her, of her commitment to writing. He had a falling out with her, yet I detected no malice in his remarks. I wonder how you feel about the value of such interviews and how the biographer should use them. I'm presuming, of course, that you would still want to engage in discussing such questions. I wouldn't be surprised if you felt our correspondence on the subject had run its course, though I'd certainly be disappointed to end this dialogue with you. All, all the best, Carl Rollison. He responds the very next day. Uh, I should... Uh, tell you, too, that these were faxes, mostly. So you could respond the very next day. Not emails, but faxes. He writes April 27th. Dear Carl, we are entering the last three weeks of classes at UMass, and I am a basket case. Just got back from lectures at Clark Atlantic University, Williams College, and Mount Holyoke on respectively black science fiction, gay identity, and literary representations of madness, but this is to acknowledge your note of April 25, acknowledging my notes of April 6th. Really, I think you've made the best choice in terms of material to select for your biography class. I could see teaching the madman in conjunction, say, with James Miller's biography of Foucault, which you were using as a negative, which you were using as a negative example, say, of how not to write a biography of a gay intellectual. With some real thought put in the pedagogy, it might work very well, but in the five-week course you're talking about, it would just be too much. As to off-the-record interviews, I think you should by all means make use of the information it contains. I'm sure the interviewee stipulated the conditions of the interview. Needless to say, I believe those must be respected too, but I shall go into more detail in three weeks when I can actually sit down and answer your last wholly fascinating letter. Have I run out of things to say about biography? Not by a long shot. It's only a matter of finding the energy and the time. Just let me know when you want me to visit your class. My summer is, as it were, yours. On Tuesday morning at 9.30, I visit a class at UMass on comic books, another of my sidelines of expertise. I'll be in the city pretty much the whole summer. Last classes end around May 15th. Then there are final papers to mark, and I shall be free at last, free at last, to sit down and do some real work, real letter to come in about three weeks, maybe a few days more. To you and Lisa, all my best wishes with all good thoughts for all good things, Samuel R. Delaney. <clears throat> that was April. The next letter comes from him, June 9th, 1997. I didn't write to him in the interval, probably because I felt it'd be too, too much. He was busy teaching and uh, it, would just, it would be too much. So he writes, Dear Carl, Dear Lisa, 
I am appalled. I promised to write you in May, and here it's getting on to the middle of June. Looking back over the term, however, it's been quite a stretch. After a fire on February 1, we didn't get our gas turned on in the building until May 8. We couldn't really cook other than what could we could do in a microwave or a toaster oven for over three months. The plasterers got to fix the holes in the kitchen wall and ceilings. Basically, we didn't have a bathroom ceiling only two, two and a half weeks ago. And to add charm and adventure to our otherwise dull lives, because of the fire and or some major con ed work outside the building in front of the Amsterdam Avenue face, we had an infiltration of rats twice. About a week apart, one jumped on the bed in the middle of the night, and I woke to its charlestoning about on our feet, whereupon, with a blanket between me and it, I kicked it across the room. Squee, thud, yeah, thud while Dennis dozed peacefully through it all beside me. But Dennis got his own back, killing two of the things with a goddamn hammer. Glue traps. A third was severed by a spring trap in apartment mate John Del Gazio's room, which made that very straight, very large, 280-pound Italian gentleman, one of my best friends for a decade and a half at this point, shriek, leap out of bed, and come close to backing out the window. Then, of course, I dreamed about the damn things getting in bed with us and woke flailing. Dennis, ow, what the hell does that matter? Oh, in short, only two actual bedroom encounters, but given the dream, it might as well have been three. And there were numberless encounters in the kitchen, the bathroom, several times one, even a rat in the living room. We're talking small cat-sized here, not kitten. Well, there's quite a bonanza here in this correspondence, as you can see, for any Samuel R. Delaney biographer. Delaney goes on. Finally, we prowled the apartment for every crack and crevice. Steel wool got shoved into every nook and cranny. This is a hundred-year-old tenement, and there are lots of them. Then, permea then permeated the Brillo with aerosol styrofoam, which for some reasons rodents don't like. Wise rodents. Four-alarm fires are such fun. But that's all in the past. I'm just 72 odd hours back from nine days in Seattle where I taught for a week at this year's Clarion San Francisco Raiders workshop. I've been doing Clarions more or less annually since 67. That's 30 years now, and certainly this summer's was one of the three best I've attended. Allow me a moment to brag about my successful Clarion students from previous years. Kim Stanley, he lists her titles, Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars, Robinson, Octavia, MacArthur Genius Award, Butler, and Gustav Full Metal Jacket, Hasford. This was such a good collection that I wouldn't be surprised if 97 turned out to be a sort of anomirabilis for Clarion. But then I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't either. A dinner conversation that I had with a young man there, i.e. 38 years old, we decided to go off together and have dinner, apart from the rest of the group at a Tex-Mex restaurant at the University on Seattle's colorful Broadway. Aspiring writer Rob Fury is a good place to pick up the topic of literary power. I tabled in my response to yours of 7 April. Has it been that long? The background to the conversation was this. Each week at the six-week Clarion workshop, a different instructor comes and workshops the, this year's 17, student stories for five days. The previous and first week of the workshop, San Francisco writer Michael Bishop taught his novel Ancient of, Days, Ancient of Days is one I suspect will be read well into the next century. I came to teach the second. I have to interrupt here for a minute. You recall at the beginning of the podcast, I said that Delaney was trying to tell me, us, my wife and I, that we were part of the same writing world that Susan Sontag was a, was a part of. She didn't believe it. Lots of writers of her caliber, her status, whatever you want to call it, don't believe it. Uh, they write novels about how biographers don't belong. They write movie movies are are done about how biographers don't belong. Uh, and Delaney seems to be going out of his way to instill in us a sense of belonging, 
which is part of what I think all these details are about, the inclusion of us in his writer's world, assuming that we're, in, in some sense anyway, on a par with his life experiences. And I, I can't stress enough how unusual this is. I'm 75 years old. I've never had any writer outside of George Garrett, who, who wrote a few biographies, but was mainly a novelist and a poet. Outside of George Garrett, I can't think of another uh, writer who was the least bit interested uh, in a biography uh, and, or in my work, for that matter. So I go on with, with uh, Delaney's letter. Uh, he's talking about um, Rob Fury as a promising writer. Michael had been impressed enough by one of Rob's stories to, in private conversation, volunteer to write a cover letter for Rob to one of his San Francisco magazine editors that would accompany the submission. When I said I was impressed by the same story, Rob told me of Mike's offer to send a letter on Rob's behalf. I said that was fine and Rob should take up Mike Rob should take Mike up on it. Rob wanted to know if I would send a letter also, and I told him honestly that in 30 years I had never sent such a letter for a clarion student. Indeed, I felt that in general it was not a good idea, both because of its effect on other students and on the younger writer, him or herself. I've made it a policy, therefore, of not sending such letters, but I also felt it was each individual's instructor's decision to make. I had no problem with Mike having decided to do so. And here we get to the nut. Rob's feeling was that while a letter from Mike Bishop was all very nice, given his writerly reputation, a letter from Delaney, however, given mine, would assure that the story was accepted. Indeed, I was a bit surprised. I was also surprised at the conversation. This is also interesting because of the way people think the literary world works and the assumptions they make, for instance, about uh, writers who are published and how being published must mean royalties. Uh, they mean some royalties, obviously. I could never have quit my day job, no matter how many biographies I've written. They would never have supported me um, the only way I could have done that would have been to return to um, Hamtramck, Michigan, where my Polish grandparents first settled uh, and lived in one room and uh, didn't marry, didn't have children, didn't have a car, absolutely stripped down existence. I think I could just have barely made um, a life doing only biography and having no other job. I know of one writer, and I don't know if this is true of him or not, uh, who uh, lives in Boston, who once described to me over lunch his existence, which was like the one I decided not to have. And that was his only way of getting by, by being a writer only. Anyway, Delaney's quite surprised that, he, that someone thinks a letter of his could have this kind of impact. And he's getting back to this issue of power. Uh, could a writer like Susan Sontag, for example, have power? We said that she had a certain kind of power or that people perceived that she had that power, which was a much more important point. I was also surprised, Delaney says in his letter, as the conversation went on, that Rob believed it was part of his view of the world that if I brought a story uh, from a perfectly unknown writer to any of the SF editors, San Francisco editors in the field, saying, this is really good publishing, the editor would, regardless of his or her own take on the tale, because of my, he puts in quotation marks, clout. This is the illusory nature, nature of literary power that I was talking about in terms of Sontag. I agree with Delaney. It was illusory, but people believed in it. It's one of the reasons why no one had dared to do a biography of her. Um, and we, we talked about that in our proposal. One of the things I did not mention to Fury during our dinner, this is Delaney's letter again, 
was that while I do not write letters, I will often mention to San Francisco editors the names of students who struck me as particularly talented. Perhaps three times in 30 years, I've suggested that a student send a story to a particular editor and, in the student's own cover letter, mention that the suggestion came from me. In which case, I always make a point of letting the editor know that, indeed, I suggested the story be submitted. But this is not the same as writing a letter on the student's behalf. Indeed, coming back from Newark Airport, I found myself on the bus with San Francisco editor Gordon Van Gelder, currently editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Himself a clarion student of mine 10 years back, as well as today a book editor at St. Martin's Press, the Olympia bus was packed, and so I offered my seat to Gordon's very tired wife, Barbara, and as we stood in the aisles, me swaying on my cane, Gordon asked me, were there any particularly good writers at Clarion this year? And I told him how impressed I was with the group and mentioned the names of the five most talented writers as they had struck me, including Fury. But again, the point is, Gordon asked. And I know that within the next six weeks, Gordon will probably ask the same of every other instructor at the workshop. He's been asking me for five or six years now, as will the editor of Isaac Asimov's Science Fiction, Gardner Dozoy, when I sent him next week at ReaderCon, as will tour book editors David Hartwell and Patrick Nelson Hayden. And again, they will not ask just me, but all of the six instructors, and they will more or less remember the answers. All six of our lists will be different, though likely there will be some overlap. The point is, however, that both the differences and the overlaps represent conflicting writerly priorities, values, and tastes. At one point in the workshop, it was once comic, it was at once comic, sad, and fascinating to see my students misunderstand what I was saying to them. For misunderstand, they certainly did. I tried to explain to them, I devoted practically an hour of one workshop to it, that literary quality was not a consensus phenomenon, but rather a conflictual one. As a social phenomenon, literary quality was produced by the arguments of educated readers over specific works. I really like that. Uh, it's what I've noticed in reviews of biography. When my uh, biography of Lillian Hellman came out, it got mixed reviews, some really good reviews, some very negative reviews, and a lot of mixed reviews. Flash forward uh, a couple of decades, another biography comes out, and in the New York Times book review, that New Helen biography is reviewed, and it's given a pretty good review, but it said, it's not nearly as good as the standard biography of Helen by Carl Rollison. Well, I could have been floored. <laughs> no, no one, when the book came out, said anything like that. Um, so it's conflictual. It's, it can also be a matter of time as things sort themselves out and as certain contemporary attitudes begin to shift um, toward the subject, especially. Usually not toward the biographer, because people almost never remember the biographer. Delaney goes on in this letter to say, it is because quality is a conflictual rather than a consensus phenomenon that clarity, directness, and simplicity, and complexity, suggestion, and richness are all highly valued in the aesthetic marketplace. It is the reason why mythical streamlining of representation, uh, e.g. the style and Sontag's benefactor and, and observational enrichment, e.g. the style of Death Kit, are both held in high regard. It is why accurate representation of the world is praised as highly as the imaginative ability to embroider and embellish such representations. None of these contradictory aesthetic situations could exist if quality were a consensus phenomenon. Boy, that's really, really interesting. I have to think about that for a second while I sip my tea. I think I have to read that paragraph again, if you're listening to it. It is because quality is a conflictual, rather than a consensus phenomenon, 
that clarity, directness, and simplicity, and complexity, suggestion, and richness are all highly valued in the aesthetic marketplace. It is the reason why mythical streamlining of representation, he considers that's what's happening at Sontag's benefactor, and observational enrichment, that's happening in Depkit, he says, are both held in high regard. It is why accurate representation of the world is praised as highly as the imaginative ability to embroider and embellish such representations. None of these contradictory aesthetic situations could exist if quality were a consensus phenomenon. What I'm thinking about as I read that is I've been teaching for the Rosenbach Foundation a class on Faulkner's novel, As I Lay Dying. And it's one of the best examples of what Delaney is talking about here. Accurate representation. Those people, the Bundrens, uh, the way they talk when they do talk uh, is mimetic. It sounds real, actual, um, copied from reality. On the other hand, when they're thinking, when they're imagining, um, and so much about the structure and form of the novel fits into this category of embroider and embellish representation, where they're, they're not thinking the way they're talking. And words are used, in fact, to express what they themselves cannot express in words. Uh, and when this book appeared, some reviewers got it right away. Uh, others were puzzled uh, by this dis the very disjunction that Delaney is talking about between representation and embroidery or embellishment. He goes on to say, to be most productive, the conflicts must arise, of course, between educated readers. As I talked, I was very specific about the nature, extent, and limits to my own education as well as theirs. I finished by telling the circle of 17, there on the 12th floor of Campion Tower, where our, our last workshop session met after four days on the fourth floor of the Seattle Central Community College, that I was giving them my judgments of their works in front of them all, rather than in private conferences, precisely because all of them had read the stories as well, and because many of them would disagree and thus, we were initiating the conflictual process that finally was the production mechanism of quality, a mechanism that I possessed no more than they, that produced a quality that in historical terms itself was never final. I think that's part of the reason why Delaney did not, did not want to write letters on a particular writer's behalf, because of this conflictual theory of quality. He goes on, 24 hours later, kind of like a kid's game of round robin whispering, where along the circle the message comes back to you completely distorted at dinner. Rob, this is Rob Fury, a writer, explained to me how he and so many of the other students had been a bit ruffled because I had told them for an hour in class, he explained back to me, that I was a more educated reader than they were. He puts in parentheses exclamation mark and that, therefore, I was qualified to pronounce them, two exclamation marks in parentheses, and, and well, by right of that education, won the privilege of doing it in public rather than in private, three exclamation marks, which stories of theirs were of high quality and which were not. I can imagine how stunned he was. It isn't that, he says, it isn't that people hear just what they want to hear, Carl. Rather, they have models for the way the world works, Discourses that they deeply inhabit, which constrain how they hear pretty much anything and everything said to them. I asked Fury, well, what about the conflictual model of quality that I spent so much time talking about? To which he responded, I don't think most of, uh, uh, most of us understood that. I know I certainly didn't follow it. This is partly why we read that paragraph. I think it does make sense, but it does take some sorting out. What about the qualifications, uh, Delaney says, I was making about my own limits as a reader. Fury says, oh, everybody says that. You know that doesn't mean anything. And what has all this got to do with Sontag, Delaney asks. 
The model of literary power that you, I suspect, will be chasing down and tracking through Sontag's career is the invention of and exists only because of the discourse of people like genial, talented, hard-working writer Rob Fury, who needs to believe that power is out there and that other people have it. Otherwise, the world just doesn't make sense to him. I think I understood that. I think that's why we titled our biography The Making of an Icon. How do you make an icon? It's, it's, it's through perception uh, and through, I think, the conflictual theory of quality that that Delaney is talking about here. He goes on, though it is not stated in so many words, however, the writer of approaching Artaud under the sign of Saturn and passion of the mind is someone who, reread them for just this point, and you'll see it, believes as I do in the conflictual model of quality. Finally, it is a more realistic model, a more efficient model, in that it gives the believer greater control over the world of literary endeavor, i.e., it tells you where, ener where energy that you put out can be most effective and where it will most certainly be wasted. Then the competing model, Furies, that's his student, he explains what's going on, what's going to go on, even when people like Rob and some of the other students don't get it. One of the things it tells you is, put the energy into your work. The most effective way to bolster the reputation of your works is not to do anything but work. It really is the case. My ex-wife, Marilyn Hacker, won the National Book Award for Poetry when she was out of the country in England so that she could do no promotion of the volume at all. And thus she became a topic of curiosity and conversation for the New York Circle, which probably got the award, got her the award more than any other extra literary factor. Extra literary there is restrictive. Once she showed up and became part of that scene, her reputation was never again so high. Although, one among several competing views, I think her work is much better, is, is much at its best today. But three months ago, a close friend of many years named Bill Bronicky wrote her a strongly worded and very harsh letter, claiming to completely detest, detest her last book, finding nothing in it but bombast, and thus was breaking off their friendship. But, another but, an extremely bright 27-year-old woman at Clarion who had that same book almost by heart, confessed to me that she'd only applied to the workshop when she learned that Marilyn Hacker's ex-husband was going to be teaching there, and sheepishly asked if she might spend a couple of hours questioning me about my ex-wife, which I consented to, and she did. The point is, none of the three of us, Naomi, Eclarian, or Bill, can resolve that question, nor can you. All you can do is get the book, Winter Numbers, that's Marilyn Hacker's book, read it, and join the argument. I won four Nebula Awards, he says, from the Science Fiction Writers of America. And the first of my two Hugos, though pretty much the same strategy as the one with which Marilyn won her, her NBA National Book Award in 75. In both cases, we were largely out of the country at the beginning of the whole process, and in my case, just not very much in evidence until after the awards were in. As a strategy, Marilyn's and mine, it was, wholly it was a wholly unconscious one. Neither one of us had any idea what that's what we were doing or how. But the fact is, absence, invisibility, silence, distance are always the most salient factors in power. In parentheses, he says, in Roman law, if a question is addressed to you in court and you remain silent, that is construed as a yes. Thus, a wholly silent entity who never speaks can be construed as declaring yes to all questions. That is power. I suspect that has a great deal to do with the initially meteoric careers of the very talented, probably even Sontag's, even though she was married, uh, he says, to, to Rob. It's actually Reef, Philip Reef. Even though it now looks as if she were the center of everything. I'll finish up this discussion with a consideration of three events you detail in your letter. One, he quotes, 
Roger Strauss had the power to get another publisher to withdraw the book from the market and change the book jacket because the jacket contained a blurb from Sontag that she did not want on the jacket. The blurb was taken from a letter of hers published in the New York Times praising Alfred Chester. Chester's editor, Dick Kluger, got into an exchange of correspondence with Sontag about it, and we have interviewed Kluger. He was a new editor and was aghast that such things could be done. That's, he's quoting from one of my letters. Delaney says, I'm not familiar with the incident or its details. From my experience with New York publishing over 30 years, however, the first thing I would say is editors and publishers tend to be power mad, often under the politest of social veneers, though equally, often quite nakedly so, writers don't. And Roger Strauss is not Sontag. Sontag might well have objected to a blurb being used, how it was excerpted, what was the rest of the context, etc. These may have all contributed to her not wanting it in someone's book, but it was Strauss, after all, who got the jack withdrawn. Well, this is a distinction to, to me without a difference, because she worked hand in glove with Strauss, and he certainly would not have objected uh, if, if there weren't at least the implication that she wanted him to. But you'd have to read the biography to see if I'm right about that. That is the biography my wife and I wrote. If I may insert, Delaney says, another exemplary personal anecdote, when the first mass market printing of The Madman came out, the one I sent you, my publisher, uh, Richard Kasek, had the printer pulp the whole edition, not quite half a dozen pages in the text used a word or phrase of Greek. Knowing this would be a problem, I'd provided rhinoceros with a Greek font on disk. The managing editor, the clever and efficient Jennifer Root, even checked to make sure the font was compatible with the printer's equipment, then included it in the quotation mark suitcase, that is the computer specification, the specifications that go along with every book to the printer. Somehow, however, the printer managed to leave the font off their computer. Thus, everywhere there was Greek in the book. It came out a mishmash of Roman letters and spaces. When copies arrived in the publisher's office, Jennifer checked those pages first, saw that they had been bollocksed, and brought them to publisher Richard Kasich's attention, who had a shit fit. I can't let this go out. Besides, it's the printer's fault. They have to swallow it, make him pulp it, and do it again. Needless to say, when this news was conveyed to the printers, they phoned Richard and asked if he really was all that important. Was it worth pulping 15,000 copies of a 600-page book because of six bollocks lines in a foreign alphabet? Said Richard, he took great glee in telling me this over lunch a week later, I told him, look, this is the madman. Delaney is the madman. You mess up his Greek, he'll come in and trash my office. By the time he gets finished throwing computer monitors through the windows, overturning desks, throwing files around and scaring everybody out of the building, he'll do me a lot more damage than it'll cost you to reprint. Look, I know what this guy is like. I can't afford that. Please do it over. That's his publisher. Delaney goes on to say, and this, this all was done and said even before I was made aware of the mistake, which I would have sighed over certainly. But the most I would have suggested on my own was that they slip an errata sheet in the copies that went out to reviewers. Yes, but his relationship with that publisher, however close, um, again, Roger Strauss simply would not um, have acted without Sontag's at least tacit approval. He goes on to say, five points might be made here, all of them I think possibly relevant to your Sontag story. One, was I happy to have my book redone with the Greek correct? Of course. Sontag probably didn't want the quote used. She didn't. We had the evidence, too. But there was, after all, a real reason to do it. In the use of the quote, had Kluger misrepresented by ellipses, changing of words, or what have you? Let me tell you someday about my last blurb on Kathy Acker's Pussy King of the Pirates, 1996, that was cut without an ellipsis anywhere in sight by an editor who decided it would just read better that way. Three, but there are a lot of people, both at the printers and in Richard's office, who now think I am much more of a dragon than I am. Are there lots of people who think Sontag is powerful because Strauss likes acting on her behalf? Well, I've already made my point of view clear. Four, as a publisher, Richard delights in pulling grandiose gestures of that sort, and he always blames them on irate writers 
who are terrorizing him. I'm sure Strauss does too. Publishers do. Sontag is the perfect person to cite if you are given to such fictions, and most publishers are. Five, though Richard is a tiny paperback publisher, he is still, in terms of publishing executives, a very familiar type. Finally, he did it because he could get away with it, and it cost him no money to do so. Bet you dollars to donuts it don't cost Roger Strauss a cent either, though it may well have been costly to someone else. As you read over your Kluger interview, bear in mind that David Kluger may be just another Rob Fury, and also, actually it's not David Kluger, it's Richard Kluger, Roger Strauss is only more or less refined version of Richard Kasich, a man and publisher whom I am very fond of, and who I have great respect for, by the by. Sontag may feel the same about Strauss. She did. She was very fond of him. Um, um, but she certainly, uh, we got calls, you know, from attorneys like Martin Garvis doing the heavy lifting for her. Do you imagine an attorney with Marvin Garvis's, Martin Garvis's reputation just going off and intimidating my agents uh, without, in some sense, Sontag's approval? Why would someone like Martin Garvis do that? So, I mean, this is an argument I'm having, obviously, with Delaney about, about power uh, and how it operates. Um, and it operates, obviously, very different in his, in his case. Number two, another example, a young journalist, Susan uh, Gordon, we wrote to him about uh, her, interviewed Sontag for Vogue. Gordon thought the interview went well, though she admits to having been disappointed with Sontag's posturing. Then Roger Strauss asked Vogue to kill the interview. Gordon had an agent, George Borchardt, who tried to intercede on Gordon's behalf, but Leo Lerman at Vogue killed the interview, even though Strauss conceded after Borchardt defended his client that there was no reason for killing the interview except that Sontag didn't like it. There was no prior agreement that she had the right to review it, no ground rules about what could be asked in the interview. He's quoting from one of my letters. Again, note, he says, Delaney says, that the real players in this incident are all agents, editors, and publishers. Sontag may not have liked the interview and wanted it killed. That's not the point. The people who delight in actually playing out such games at last are still, are still not the writers in question. As to why she may not have liked the piece, that's a far more speculative issue. But Nabokov would not do interviews, and I have all but given up on them myself, and like Nabokov, see his Strong Opinions, 1973, will only do them if they are written, see my collection of written interviews. Silent interviews, especially the introduction and the K. Leslie Steiner interview, he gives various references. The fact is, Carl, that since the end of the 60s, the concept of the interview has changed, largely under the pressure of television and the media. The media interview is an entirely different object from the traditional literary intellectual interview. Until then, an interview with an intellectual meant that you, had, you asked some questions, took more or less accurate notes on the answers, wrote it up, presented it to the person being interviewed, who then might easily rewrite the whole thing from start to finish. New Yorker, I don't know about right now, but in Sontag's day, did that. Had essentially allowed uh, her to rewrite herself. The reasons were all those that I list uh, in um, earlier. With the media interview, however, some bizarrely paradoxical notions of honesty and sincerity took over in the realm of media commodities. Somehow Barbara Walters coming into the home of Michael Jackson or Barbara Streisand captures the real celebrity behind the glamour and the lights and people have bought into it. You know, it's much older than that. You can go back to Edward R. Murrow. Edward R. Murrow, you know, one of the icons, if I can use that word, of journalism, uh, did this, this um, essentially, You Are There program. I forgot the title of it, but, you know, uh, he, in live television, he's interviewing Marilyn Monroe, where in the, in the home of her business partner and photographer, Milton Green. Um, this is not... Uh, this is not a new thing. Uh, it's not that the culture isn't changing, uh, but you might almost say it's more of the same. Actors are performers, Delaney says, and when an actor is interviewed, what you get, no matter how sincere, is a performance. Well, intellectuals are performers too, 
but they're not the same kind of performer. We perform on the page. Often we even perform sincerely on the page. If we are public performers as well, however, that's secondary. Ground rules and agreement as to questions to be asked are just not to the point. It's not to control the questions I restrict myself to written interviews. It's to control the answers. And the nature of that control is a matter of not letting fear and social intimidation inadvertently trip me into dishonesty and repression. The reason I'm a writer is because I'm more myself when I write, not less. And that's why any intellectual wants to go over the material in the interview as a writer who can change, correct, clarify, expand, and yes, cut. One way to control the answers is, of course, to know the questions, or at least to know that certain difficult ones will be avoided ahead of time. But it is a very naive interview who th interviewer who thinks when he or she asks an embarrassing question and gets a response of stutters and stammers and equivocations that this represents some sort of quintessential, he puts in quotation marks, truth about the matter interrogated. Till very recently, rights of review were the ground rules of intellectual interview. The reason there were no specifically written interviews with intellectuals was because what all interviews were. Check out the introductions to Howard Griffin's conversations with W.H. Auden, the eight conversations first published between 49 and 53, not to mention Anson's book of Auden's table talk initially composed over the same period. As noted by the most recent editor, Donald Allen, they follow the form and the method of Eckerman's conversations with Goethe, those most writerly of verbal literary artifices. Between Eckerman's time and Griffin's, that's what an interview with a writer was. Then came television. Believe it or not, this letter goes on for another three printed pages. And I think I'm going to stop here. Uh, I really like to stop between 30 and 45 minutes, and we're heading into 52 minutes, heading toward a whole hour. And I've never broken up a letter before, but this is so long, I will remind you of where we are. That things Delaney says about writers, and I guess about biography, are changing in the television age. So we will take up that idea and the end of this letter and my response uh, in a subsequent podcast. Thanks for listening.